um, going forward. My talk is more of a Health Center 101, so it's going to be a bit of a divergence from the rest of the day. There's going to be very little in here, in fact, none that's clinically oriented from the provider perspective. What I'm hoping to give is a sense of the Community Health Center program in terms of its history uh, and its current scope, as well as where the major activities are for clinical quality improvement that we're engaging in, and therefore wherein lies the opportunity to have overlap um, with the Ryan White programs and the HIV AIDS providers of the social safety net out there, which is a very big deal for us right now under health care reform. Uh, and by way of sort of a personal introduction, I am a still practicing family physician who took a job in the government um, just not even a year ago, straight out of uh, residency fellowship. So this is a little bit fresh to me as well. Uh, and sort of as a further personal aside, uh, I actually grew up with a number of, of friends uh, who were hemophiliacs who were diagnosed or born in 79 or 80. And a number of them are no longer with us because of tainted blood transfusions in the early 1980s. So for me personally, as well as sort of someone who believes in the ethical good and the need for clinical quality improvement around HIV AIDS care, this is something that has sort of directly affected me growing up as well. So in review, uh, we would like to go over the Community Health Center program, learn where our major quality improvement strategies are uh, at the current time, understand what our current level of HIV AIDS capacity is in the health centers with respect to screening um, as well as to treatment, and then to think a little bit more about where the opportunity lies for us to partner and move forward sort of in this landscape of, of health reform. Uh, and hopefully we can have sort of a rich Q&A on this in the end. So what is, what constitutes a health center? Um, there are a lot of different things that go into it, and there are fairly rigorous application guidelines that go into it as well. Uh, but first of all, it has to be located in a medically underserved area or serve a needy population. Of course, the mission of the health centers is the social safety net. Uh, and embedded in that are all sorts of things like um, health provider shortage areas and medically underserved areas and things that have to be met in the application cycle of a health center for them even to be propped up. It's important to understand that all the health centers out there are independent or entities that have evolved from a community need. People have figured out that there is a medical community that's not being well served, so they have gone ahead and set up um, a clinic in that area under a nonprofit guideline, and then they apply to the federal government for additional grant funding should they meet uh, the necessary criteria. In addition to those, there are 19 program requirements, and so this is just sort of a couple of bullet points about the general philosophy that encompasses those 19 requirements. Um, the community board uh, requires that 51% of the board are people that actually seek health care within those health centers. So the people that are making the decisions about the governance of that particular entity are actually people that are, are serviced there from a medical perspective. Uh, the focus of the health centers has to be on comprehensive primary care, and if services are not delivered on site, uh, such as radiology or laboratory or other diagnostic testing, the application phase requires them to show how that ent that service need is filled, either through a referral arrangement or an existing relationship with another community entity. Uh, the provision of services based uh, uh, regardless of ability to pay is very important. So if someone comes in that is uninsured, which is actually a huge swath of our patient population, or they are undocumented, it matters none. Uh, because the ability to put people on a sliding fee scale or to create some kind of creative payment requirement has to be demonstrated as part of the application to become uh, grant funded by a health center. Uh, and then there are performance and accountability requirements as well as sort of some administrative compliance things. Uh, the things that are probably most valuable for us to talk about today 
are the uniform data system requirements, which are annual mandatory requirements that all the health centers have to report into. They capture FTEs of certain provider groups. Um, they capture financial and cost metrics, and they're increasingly capturing um, clinical performance metrics as well. Uh, and you can call them federally qualified health centers, community health centers, health centers, uh, Section 330 grantees. Um, they're, all, they're all synonymous. In specific, to improve the health of the nation's underserved communities and vulnerable populations by assuring access to comprehensive and culturally competent quality primary care services is the official party line. That's what goes on the big posters all around the office. Um, and just sort of as a brief introduction, the health centers, uh, as some folks learned last night or may already be aware because they work in them or know of them, um, were actually evolved from a model that was developed in pre-apartheid South Africa, but really caught traction in the United States in the mid-1960s, originally in Mississippi and Boston, and then very shortly thereafter to a lot of large urban environments in the United States. Um, they were ultimately brought in the, under, um, in the 1960s to be incorporated into the 1944's Public Health Service Act, and that's where the 330 section grants go. And this basically, in a technical sort of legislative sense, allowed them to continue uh, to the present day under sort of their current funding guidelines, and that's allowed them to survive. Um, don't forget, this is also sort of the period in time where there's that famous video of people have seen, and, and I appreciate it was before my time, uh, of Bobby Kennedy wandering around sort of in the hills of West Virginia and just looking stunned to a camera crew and saying, people really still live like this in the United States, and that there was this evolving recognition of need um, in the medical community at that time. And so that is from, from where we have evolved. Some of the benefits of becoming a health center are, of course, you have access to federal grants that other entities might not otherwise have. Um, certainly access to Federal Tort Claims Act, which about 85% of all of our health centers avail themselves of, um, which allows them to not pay medical malpractice. That's picked up by the government as part of a large, large judgment fund, and therefore that allows the health centers to um, by FTEs and nursing providers or support staff or whatever else that they, they need. And any claims that are leveraged against the health centers are actually uh, met by an internal counsel and then outsourced to the Department of Justice if need be. Um, the ability for uh, enhanced reimbursement of certain provider types is one of the other benefits. Uh, access to 340B drug pricing programs, which is another HRSA-based program, although not run out of our bureau. Uh, and then access to providers through National Health Service Corps, whose requirement um, for loan reimbursement requires that those young providers go into places that are health professional shortage areas or underserved areas likewise. So it's not specifically that they have to go into health centers, but we share a common definitional mission and occupy the same space and sometimes the same patients in the U.S. As you can see here, this is the distribution of all 1,130 current health centers. Um, they operate... Um, the, that's the ones in brown, which are fewer. The, the dots in green are the actual sites. So any given grantee operates anywhere between 1 and 90 uh, satellite sites. The average is about 7 or 8. So there's about 8,000 total delivery sites is what the green dots are there. And you can see that there is some overlap with the largest metropolitan and the high urban density areas in the United States, and then there's a huge swath that exists outside of that area also, because by statute, the health centers are supposed to support um, at least 40% rural uh, clinical delivery activities. 
This, I, I would not take notes. There will be no quiz on this. We recently had a reorganization, um, and so that we have the divided the country up roughly into quadrants, into four geographic divisions for organizational purposes, and we have offices on top of that that help provide national strategy and, and policy focus, as well as some offices that allow for internal administrative management, uh, and then also an additional office of training and technical assistance and coordination, which helps uh, us organize learning opportunities and disseminating important information, as well as annual compliance timelines and reporting measures out to all of our grantees. So it's a big thing to organize uh, all, all 1,100. Uh, and then this is roughly how, uh, or not roughly, this is exactly how the four divisions break down. You'll notice that the green one, the central southeast, is a little bit funny shaped. Some of that has to do with HRSA as, as the parent agency, has the country divided into 10 geographic divisions. So we tried to slice it respective of those 10 divisions, but still in an intelligent population-based way. So this is who we serve. Um, this slide is, is fun. I've presented it a lot before. Uh, it's starting to um, uh, be a little bit stale in my mind. This data for 2010 is out, but it's not publicly available yet. So if we'd had this talk next week, I would have had fresh numbers for you. Um, but in calendar year 2009, just shy of 19 million patients were seen in the community health centers. 92% um, of whom were under 200% the federal poverty line. Overrepresented in the health centers, um, compared, when I say overrepresented, I mean just compared to basic U.S. average. Uh, uninsured, racial ethnic minorities, uh, about one-third of all persons experiencing homelessness in the United States seek care through the health centers in any given year, uh, as well as pediatric populations uh, because of the, the CHIP and the S-CHIP requirements. They're, they're heavily um, based in there. One of the things that, that we sometimes say is that in the health center environment nationally, um, whites to blacks to Latinos exist in a ratio of one to one to one, uh, which is obviously not true of, of the national demographic according to the 2010 census. And then this is where the majority of your, your impoverished populations lie. You can see there's some particularly dense areas in Appalachia, southern Mississippi Delta, and the Four Corners region. Um, and so some of this we have already touched on, so for the sake of time. One of the things that, that we're very proud of in terms of the health centers is despite the fact that the numbers that you just saw, when you look at the degree to which patients suffer um, from disparities and they suffer from poverty in the health center platform compared to the U.S. average, we are pretty competitive in terms of a clinical uh, outcomes measures that, that we keep track of. And we'll go through some of these measures more in, in a second. Um, but for example, one of the ones that we look at is percent of uh, hypertensive patients that have blood pressure controlled less than 140 over 90 is 63.1. The U.S. average is 62.7. And the Healthy People 2020 goal is about 61%. So we're all there. Um, and I think it's actually quite a feather in the cap of the clinicians and the people that practice in the health centers. Uh, that have been able to, with sometimes very limited resources and with patients that um, are particularly on average low literacy or impoverished or experience high disparities or multiple chronic conditions, able to produce these same results. And I think that that's the real value of the health centers in some ways, um, is that disparities reduction. In terms of the Affordable Care Act, the health center program was given $11 billion uh, over the next five years. 
which sounds like a lot until you remember that there are about 8,000 delivery sites, again, that are supported with this money. Uh, on top of uh, base appropriations, this was going to be divided unevenly out over the next five years, um, and it's changing right now because of some of the budget conversations that are happening up on the Hill. But as a rule, what this is going to allow us to do um, is to really change the way in which health care is delivered. I think we've had some discussions last night about how great the patient-centered medical home is, at least in theory, and as much as we all think that we've been able to practice that before, and I would think that folks in the room um, would recognize that, that Ryan White is actually probably well ahead of the curve compared to even us or most people on this, um, that the patient-centered medical home is, is great in theory and we all really believe it, but we're having hard times, I think, or at least it's a big lift in conceptualizing how you actually make that move. What are the things you do to operationalize it? So in terms of, you know, the conversation is expanding the health centers versus improving the health centers that we already have. I think under the current fiscal climate, the, um, the, the party line, which the administrator of our bureau uh, would suggest also, is that we were going to move forward with the latter and improve the platform that we have and then maybe someday, if the funding situation changes, continue to expand. Originally, they were dual goals under health care law, and under the current climate, it looks like we may have to forego expanding at all or expanding as rapidly as we had once thought. So how do we view quality improvement, uh, and how is that measured, and what steps are currently being taken to achieve that? One of the guiding principles of the National Quality Strategy, which was released by Secretary Sebelius and stands for the entire department at this point, is that this 40-page document uses the triple aim or the, what the government calls the three, now the three aims of care of reducing per capita cost, improving the health of individual citizens, and then really starting to think about population numbers and improving those over time too. Uh, it's no surprise that we spend a ton of money to do less well than our industrialized competitors, and we need to break that curve somewhere. But I think increasingly there is onus, and, and for me as someone who's a policy person, this is actually fairly exciting, to think about how we do not just for the individual patients we see, but think about the population and the groups at large. Uh, and some of this is certainly supported through some of the changes that are coming down. And, of course, another guiding principle is the chronic care model, which I, I think a lot of folks would be familiar with um, from Ed Wagner's group out of Seattle. Our current strategy is multi-pronged. Um, develop and enhancing access is number one, and this is really what a lot of the Affordable Care Act money was going to do and what we were going to use the impetus from health care law to create. Um, incre increased le uh, points of access is probably not going to happen as fast or at all for this year and the next year or so. Um, but the ability to improve the access in which the current clinics actually op currently operate and offer to the citizens of their community is, is, however, still possible. And that becomes possible through number two, which is the transformation of the healthcare delivery system itself. Now, there is a lot in healthcare law that has to do with this, and it goes much broader than Ryan White, and it goes much broader than the Community Health Center program. This is getting everyone to be a meaningful user of health information technology. Uh, it is the increased understanding of what a patient-centered medical home is, and then how do we build them and expand their benefits to the community at large. And these are efforts where the Bureau is very actively engaged at the moment. Uh, we certainly want to think about how we recruit and retain a skilled workforce, um, which is very strong um, in primary care and continues to serve those patients that we already work with. 
Um, certainly integration and alignment, those last two are a little bit related, but thinking about how we build out accountable care organizations, how we link to public health departments, how we cooperate better with specialists, and think about how we transmit information and rely on the expertise that is not native to the health center program and the information on patients, which is diagnostically obtained or stored or recorded elsewhere, but still makes an impact on the primary care and preventative service deliveries that, that we're so, so eager to give. Um, some of this is certainly PCMH and meaningful use wrapped up also. So I feel like these five kind of roll together in, in sort of a big ball in some senses. Um, but this is the large strategy which we are about to publish and put out to the health center in, in a bit more of a cogent fashion. Um, and then this is a, a bit more of the framework. And I'm just, these slides will be, I think, already are available to everyone. So we'll skip this for the sake of time. So a couple of things, and this is probably a bit more cogent for um, uh, when we speak to the health center grantees, but the national quality strategy, which is available there, is the overarching statement for the Department of Health and Human Services right now. The quality improvement strategy is the previous slide, or two slides ago, that we just talked about, which is the Bureau of Primary Health Care's conceptualization of the national quality strategy. So when the secretary wants the national quality strategy to happen, the Bureau of Primary Health Care says for the health centers, oh, that's where we do access and workforce and meaningful use in health information technology and aligning and, and cooperating with partners better. Um, and then so for an example specifically would be for the health centers is that we're encouraging them to develop quality improvement and quality assurance infrastructure in a more robust way than they've ever done before. Um, and that is actually the second bullet there. Um, part of the pro one of the program requirements is, is that the quality improvement and quality insurance plan is something that the board oversees at the health center level, and then they try to understand what the community needs are. So if you had a health center that was in an HIV prevalent community, um, for example, my, my hometown of Washington, D.C., that you would see reflected in quarterly minutes that the CEO and the CMO are working with the board to create something um, that drives change and moves the ball forward with clinical quality measures. Uh, but it's allowed to be organic and local because all these health centers are going to know their communities far more intimately than we ever will. But formalizing this process, which is actually a... a a, one of the 19 imperative requirements of a health center, but making it stronger and, and more lasting, I think, is very important. Some of the clinical quality improvement things that we're working on, um, we are, you know, our uniform data system is increasingly robust, and we're trying to think about how to graph data visually, trend data over time, report data back to the grantees to sort of enculturate that self-reflection and reporting of data measures is actually really important. Um, and we'll touch on this in a second with respect to HIV care as well. Uh, and then expanding within that as well, uh, clinical quality forums, which we host internally for our project officers that administer the grants to the individual health centers to make sure that they're savvy and knowledgeable and comfortable about this as well. And that's also a good avenue to promote uh, best practices and showcase high performers so that lessons learned in some environments can be translated to others. Because clearly when you look at a place that goes, you know, from Bangor, Maine to San Diego, California, there's going to be practice variances. Uh, and some of them are very valuable and exportable, and some of them are going to be idiosyncratic and helpful only to specific um, communities and where they work. And so we need to understand that better and figure out how to disseminate that. Uh, adoption of meaningful use and national quality recognition, which is the next slide, uh, which has to do really largely with patient-centered medical home, but national quality recognition can also refer to quality accreditation through the Joint Commission or the Association of uh the Accreditation Association of Ambulatory Health Centers. So those are two separate things that we have, quality accreditation and the patient-centered medical home. Um, and so again, this is that ball just sort of keeps rolling. 
um, let's see, for the sake of time, the patient-centered medical home is, of course, something that is designed to improve outcomes and control spending. Um, it has a real opportunity, I think, to control disparities also. And, and I personally believe that this, you know, even though they say if you've seen one patient-centered medical home, you've seen one patient-centered medical home, uh, and information is still needs to be more forthcoming about the particular widgets and, and those aspects that drive quality from, the, from these patient-centered medical homes that have already launched. Um, but by doing that, I, I think that a lot of the fundamental tenets, which are the reliance on health information technology, coordinated tracking of specific patient data, patients knowing who their doctor is, which apparently half of the country doesn't or is unable to identify who their primary ongoing physician is, um, some of these issues begin to be addressed, as well as the ability for the PCMH to interdigitate with local community resources, enabling resources, dental, behavioral um, as well as specialty care, because as great as primary care is, some people are still going to need a cardiologist in the end. Um, and I think that this model is sensitive to all of those things, and therein lies its real promise. Uh, and there is some evidence out there that even, even the worst ones are cost neutral, but tend to improve patient metrics a little bit. Um, so, but the better ones actually seem to actually do a little bit of both. Whether or not those gains are sustainable over time is going to be something that I think we all, all need to see. Um, but philosophically, this construct um, appears to be a much better way to practice medicine than we're already doing it now. We have two things here. Um, one is that we are paying for health centers to go through the uh, NCQA recognition process. Uh, and for the sake of time, we'll move a little bit fast this part. Uh, and CMS is also doing a Medicare Advanced Primary Care Practice Demo. APCP is what they call PCMH, basically. Um, and that also is happening in the health center program. We have over 500 sites enrolled in ours, and CMS is looking throughout this summer to enroll another 500 health center sites. So that's about 1,000 of the 8,000 that exist totally. Uh, and that there are, there are others in certain states um, where the primary care associations have been aggressive that are already recognized. So it's not impossible by the end of this year or next year um, that you know, somewhere between 15 to 25% of the entire platform will be engaged in this process or already recognized in it, which is very exciting to us. Uh, the adoption of meaningful use technology, uh, the strategies listed here, uh, again, we probably won't go through just for the sake of time, but it has a lot to do with developing health center controlled networks or groups of health centers that go in to buy a singular electronic health record and support each other in that adoption process and then share data and best practices afterwards. We have project officers and public health analysts that are working to disseminate information and create portals so that uh, the health centers can easily access um, the refund dollars through CMS or to talk to their local regional extension centers in their states, which can also support them in that process and help them develop their applications so that they apply once and then get accepted by CMS for the repayment. Um, so that's sort of an ongoing strategy. We're also trying to better understand because, of course, you know, as we were just talking about with clinical quality improvement, you can't improve anything that you don't measure. So it's actually really hard right now to understand um, in the health centers and also nationally in the ambulatory care world what our level of electronic health record adoption really is. We believe it's about half of all the health centers are using electronic records right now, but perhaps only 5 to 10% are using them in a, in a quote-unquote meaningful way and meeting um, the Office of the National Coordinator's definition for that. So we've got some work to do in both understanding that and pushing the ball forward. Um, and, of course, meaningful use is, is just a tool. It's a good tool. Uh, the, under the 2008 NCQA standards, anyone who is a stage one meaningful user of electronic health records is already a stage one patient or a level one patient-centered medical home in their book. 
Um, so meaningful use tends to be a good place to start. And if you do it well, you are 90 to 95% of your way to becoming a, a patient-centered medical home as well. So these are the things that we measure, and, and this is an area that might be a little bit more ripe for discussion um, between our two groups. But historically, uh, and for the last number of years, we've looked at low birth weight babies, entry into prenatal care, which of course includes um, bundling of laboratory and initial prenatal services, including HIV testing for, for mothers. Um, childhood immunization, pap tests, adult hypertension, and adult diabetes are all things that we've used in the past. This year, we are now collecting uh, both child and adult process measures for weight screening and treatment referral, as well as we're looking at tobacco use assessment counseling, as well as appropriateness of prescribing for pharmacologic asthma therapy as well. Next year, we are thinking about adding even more additional measures, and there is an inherent balance, I think, here between you know, those of us that, that live in public health or, or researchers, clinicians, and scientists, and if you could, you would measure everything that's out there, right? You would have hundreds of these, and you would constantly be looking at them every quarter, understanding specific subgroups of your population, running registries to understand where you're failing, where you're succeeding, and that sort of thing, so that an annual measurement in these 10 areas um, is radically different from where the Bureau of Primary Health Care has been before, and is a really great step forward. Uh, but as we think about this, there are some really absent things that are up there, um, including HIV care. And I think one of the other things that's absent also is uh, behavioral and mental health metrics, which need to be incorporated also. So these are two very large domains in which we're thinking about expanding some of these for next year. Uh, and this is, you know, again, if you look at the project officers, if you look at the primary care associations, our health center control networks that are out there, all of these different layers um, some would say of bureaucracy, I would say of, of coordinated delivery management, that there, there's opportunity to continue to enculturate all of these elements into the health center program. So shifting people from um, being grant-funded organizations that provide care to be ones that are, that are much more self-reflective in terms of data acquisition and data use, as well as entities that are um, novel in the way that they deliver care and are really shifting the paradigm and pushing the ball uphill. Now, now the, again, the, one of the reasons I showed the, the numbers from earlier from some of those reporting measurements is the health centers, I believe, have done excellent with this over the years. They've provided a really valuable service to a population who might otherwise legitimately not have access, period. Um, but that is not a place, I think, to rest laurels, especially in, in, in health reform. But how do we move forward and capacitate them to do more um, while working at the same level or, or even a little bit easier, working smarter through these new systems and with these new technologies? Um, and in that, I think that one of the things that happens is when you have systems like this or cultures that are like this, people that are on the ground can recognize community need a lot faster than they can if they have a whole room full of paper charts that only get pulled when a patient comes in for a visit. And so those areas of the country that have a high prevalence of HIV or persons living with HIV, um, then that there is an opportunity for those clinics to develop local partnerships, to um, lean on the expertise of other providers in the area, to create linkages for important services that they might otherwise be missing. And all of this is part of the direction we're trying to go. Um, it's a big lift for us. It's a big lift for, M, for them. Uh, but it is, it is fundamentally important, I think, to, to health care law as we go forward, or just health reform in general. Um, I don't want to reflect that this is all statutory compliance. This is a real ethical imperative, I think, from our perspective. Um, if you're a health... If you're a, um, a health center and you want to become a PCMH, this is a little schematic I whipped up. So now 
When you look at, uh, at sort of the health centers and, and what we do in terms of HIV care, I see you have a few minutes left, and then we'll move into Q&A. Um, you know, two or more afflictions interacting synergistically, contributing to excess burden of disease in a population is how the CDC finds syndemics. Uh, we are involved in a couple of different things. Certainly, one of the things that we're doing, as you may have noticed earlier from the, the slides, is that we're trying to build the house here. We're trying to build the superstructure in some ways and allow the individual communities to backfill whatever their needs might be. Um, that is, of course, with the exception of some of the mandatory reporting requirements, which you can tell are, are intentionally you know, wide at this point. When you look at hypertension, when you look at obesity, when you look at childhood immunizations, these are things that affect all communities. So they're the reporting metrics. So, but beyond that, there is opportunity for specific uh, traction with respect to HIV initiatives right now. Of course, the White House has the National HIV AIDS Strategy, and we have members of our, of our bureau, um, even though I'm involved, there are other people that are much more involved as well, um, that are trying to develop internal capacity to, in the health centers to align with some of the, the White House initiatives. So we have survey assessments and trainings uh, and internal communiques uh, with our project officers and some of our divisions and offices um, in, the, in, our, in our main building, outdressed outside Washington. We have opportunities for external learning and clinical quality forums and additional things to move the ball forward for health centers. Uh, 24 of the health centers have just partnered this year um, with the AIDS Education Training Centers to develop novel curriculums in HIV prevalent areas in 24 different cities across the country, uh, which span both coasts and, and dip into the Caribbean as well. Uh, and so all of this is going on right now. In addition, there's, as I mentioned, strong um, interest and thought process right now being given to an HIV reporting metric, uh, which even if that is something that's burdensome to clinics that are, experience a low prevalence of HIV AIDS, is something that probably could be reflected out across the entire landscape without too much trouble so that we can begin to capture this data. We know that about 5% of our health centers regularly test for HIV. That number is about 10% in the 12 cities, the 12 prevalent cities. Um, even though closer to 90% of the health centers report the capacity to test everyone all the time based on CDC opt-out guidelines, um, there, you can clearly see that even in a place like Detroit or L.A. or Washington, if people are only testing 10% of the patients that come through the door, there's opportunity to improve and change the culture with respect to that as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, again, to, to come back to the delivery transformation, capacitating health centers, again, through patient-centered medical home and meaningful use and thinking about how they use those tools to reflect this data and interdigitate with community need um, is really one of our major drives at this point. And one of the reasons why we say this is that we have a broad platform and we see a lot of people every year. Um, but the health centers in general do not necessarily have the expertise, capacity to handle some of this. And I think that even when I worked in a health center last year as part of my fellowship, we had opt-out screening guidelines and tested a lot of people in Washington, but anyone who was positive was referred to Howard University down the street because we didn't have the internal capacity or comfort to think about um, how to appropriately deliver that care. So I think that there is a real opportunity here with the, with the Ryan White-funded entities and the providers in this room and, and elsewhere to collaborate. Because I think that the Bureau is not interested in um, so much developing internal HIV capacity and obviating this landscape at the moment, but creating those linkages in a more coordinated fashion in the landscape and borrowing sort of from some of the resources that we have and the breadth of our platform with some of the content expertise that, that you all have in this room. 
And to that effect, I see that I'm, I'm 30 seconds over. Um, these last two slides just sort of reiterate that and show that within the health centers, uh, the majority of our FTEs, in fact, about half of the physician FTEs, are dedicated to family medicine. Um, guys like me that, despite all the great things that I heard today, I would still be uncomfortable de novo diagnosing an HIV-positive patient and then initiating treatment on my own. And I think that that's very common. Um, there's a heavy preponderance of nurse practitioners and PAs, as well as nurses and other um, medical personnel in the health centers. Uh, and then we have the capacity here, um, which depending on how you look at it, looks either good or low um, for case management and outreach staff and, and other folks. Um, and that's, these are things that we can think about also uh, in terms of training and workforce capacity as we move forward. So I'm very excited to be here. I am very happy to take questions and answers at this point. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dr. Burke. We really uh, are happy to have you here because we know that uh, this movement is coming forward and we have a great opportunity to work together. As mm -hmm. Myself, as uh, I used to be uh, just a little standalone Ryan White Clinic, then we became an FQHC, and now we're a community health center. It's a growth process. Mm -hmm. It is a merger of cultures. And I think this group is really dedicated to helping our patients the most, so we look forward to this opportunity. I could not agree more. Thank you. Donna? Yes, thank you, Dr. Burke, for a great overview of something I think many, many of us and people in general do not understand. Uh, I liked your comment. I think I agree wholeheartedly. When you've seen one CHC, you've seen one CHC. And that's very much because of the board approach to this. Uh, I would just like to second and or push for making HIV testing a part of the quality measurement in any and every CHC. Mm -hmm. It is the easiest thing that you can imagine doing. Thank you. The CDC has had a guideline since 2006, which is one of the most widely disregarded and undone guidelines in all of primary <laughs> care. And in, the, the problem is, and You'll even get in, no my, argument here. in my own CHCs, until they start testing and know they're seeing these people, they do not want to believe that they're seeing these people. And yet mm -hmm. they are the, the part of the population, just like the VA, and the VA is starting to show that now, that are most likely to be positive. And I have, I mean, I'm an ETC as well in Kansas, and I have difficulty getting into CHCs because the response is, we don't see those people. We don't have those people. Go talk to somebody else. So mm -hmm. my goal would be to make that a very concrete in this era of registries and meaningful use. One of the things that we really push, because until we find these patients, we can't treat them. We can't prevent them from giving it to somebody else. So I guess I think you're hearing unanimity in the, in the HIV treating population. We're more than willing to help. But most CHCs, in my opinion, have excellent people, and we, the ETCs, can help people learn how to deal with it, how to do the basics, and then refer when necessary. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe CHCs can't do this, and I think mm -hmm. they're going to have to do this, but we have to find the patients first. So. Mm -hmm. Kudos to you, but let's work harder at that as a performance measure. No, thank you. That's an excellent comment, and I, and I do appreciate it. And this is the sort of thing that I will definitely bring back and take up the flagpole. I think I don't know if it's a sense of denialism or um, overwork, but a lot of I find that health center docs are running 
110 miles an hour with their hair on fire. And maybe the, there's, in some places, but not universally, a discomfort or an unawareness or an unfamiliarity with treatment um, or a lack of access to treatment in the community that prevents them from testing. And you see this a lot, not just in HIV care, but in a lot of diseases where um, what do you do if you don't have the capacity to treat something? What if you don't have a suicide hotline and someone comes in and threatens to kill themselves? Do you stop screening for that just because you don't have the ability to take care of it? In your impression, whether or not that's right or wrong? Or do you actually you know, bite the bullet from the other end and say that this is a real problem, something that we should deal with, even though we don't have the capacity, let's start doing it and then build the capacity out in a, in a more backward sense. Um, and and it's, a, it's a dichotomous tension you see in a lot of different things, and I think because of the historic stigma um, and the, the impact and the severity of a disease like this, um, I, I think it's particularly um, potent. But it's a, it's a cultural aspect that we need to change, I think, broadly, not just in the health centers, but I think broadly. We have hepatitis C. I mean, mm -hmm. We've got a million or so people with HIV and another three or four million with hep C, mm -hmm. which is another huge issue that I think all of us are going to have You may to be pleased. Dr. Aurora is coming to visit our office very Good. shortly, and we're going to have these conversations more fully with, uh, with the experts. So I have one question uh, from the cards here about Orion White Clinic becoming an FQHC and receiving federal grants. Is mm -hmm. that a possibility? It, it is a possibility. So when I, I say we talk about not expanding as rapidly. Um, there are two ways to expand with expanded services at particular sites, which is gone for this year. And then there's the way to expand with whole new sites, which are new access points, uh, which is still partially available, although there's not that much funding left for that this year. Uh, 2012 is still a little bit of a mystery. It depends kind of how um, the congressional winds blow, I suppose, at this point. Um, but if people are interested in becoming um, FQHCs or becoming an attached site to an existing grantee, there is still opportunity to do that in this current fiscal year. Um, and these are things that I could, depending on where you're geographically located, please come find me afterwards and, and I can plug you into the directors and the, and the branch chiefs that would be able to answer those questions more fully. Um, is that, it's hard to know if that fully answers the question. On the microphone, please. Yeah, my name is Kim Poon. I'm a recent graduate from an uh, ID fellowship, and I'm actually internal medicine pediatric residency uh, trained. And I'm working at F FQHC as uh, one of the Ryan White HIV providers. However, I'd have to say that, you know, that's, I guess, pretty rare. And, uh, and as your chart, as I've seen, is pretty indicative of the kind of physicians that are working, mainly family practice and real general physicians. Mm -hmm. I think one of the problems that we have is that we don't have the infrastructure, you know, on a national scale to provide subspecialty care for the patients that do need it. Mm -hmm. And referral bases and everything, having, you know, some kind of setup is good. However, I think that our main problem is that we have to provide better incentives for residents and uh, at the medical school level for them to graduate and feel that the FQHC or the uh, more of a general CHC option is not a, you know, economically hard option because it is in some sense. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the average ID position, the graduation or the median income was 200 last year. That's nowhere near what, you know, an FQHC can offer, which is fine. But mm -hmm. the thing is, I think we're losing out on the battle. In, in finding the proper incentive and in finding the right minds and the right skill set in providing good care at this level, which is serving an awfully large population. Right. And, I, and I think that is a huge problem. We need to, I think that we need to better incentivize something like this. 
Yeah, and gosh, that's a whole another hour lecture about workforce. I, I think it's one of the things that concerns me most moving forward and, and is a real threat not just to the health centers but to, to reform movement in general is the ability to produce the appropriate physicians with the appropriate skills for this kind of need because really what reform is trying to do is, is upend fee-for-service episodic care and build structures where patients live longitudinally so that all their care needs are addressed no matter how complex or, or, or non-complex they may be. Um, so that's what we're trying to do with the health centers. But in order to do that, you need you know, an, quite an expanded group of primary care physicians that are interested in underserved, slightly less well-paid work, um, as well as the fact that now you're asking them to do internal capacity building for specific disease processes that are somewhat outside the scope of, of, of their normal practice and training environments. And I think therein you, you run in really quickly to the problem of how do we train these people without burning them out for every possible condition. And, and I'm not sure that that's possible at this point. Within HRSA there are groups that are looking at, uh, bureaus outside of ours, that are looking at, at teaching health centers and other models and stuff. And, and, and I heard a comment yesterday that, it, that some good trainings and teachings of family docs won't obviate the expertise of a lot of the ID you know, fellows and post fellows in this room. Um, and I think that that's true. But if you create, I think, and this is more my opinion than sort of as, as a Fed, that if you were to create teaching health centers in specific environments outside of the academic centers, you would need linkages and stuff. And, and that's where I think folks like Dr. Aurora can help us out. But if you, if you have people trained in the communities, they're more likely to stay there. They're more likely to be mission focused. And whatever the needs are of that community, whether they be HIV or obesity or any mix of anything, they, they're going to be well suited and trained in that environment. I, as a family doc, I trained largely in a hospital setting in a community that basically was one of these communities. So I've seen these patients, but I learned how to you know, intubate and do respiratory stuff in the ICU and things that weren't native to the practice environment I was ultimately going into. So I think the way to really think about that is to start to place training environments in specific locations that have these issues or in the community where people are likely to stay and be trained in, you know, you know, waist deep in the patients that they're ultimately going to be seeing instead of being sequestered in a large academic center and hoping that they filter out. Because I think you've seen that that's not been the case and that the maldistribution of primary care is somewhat dependent on that. But I mean, then you're talking about over 60 or 70 years of graduate medical education practice and powers that go um, well beyond sort of the aggregate composite of the room. There's a lot, a lot of different things that go into that. I have a question up here about really about infrastructure, Dr. Burke. It, it relates to the 20 years or so that Ryan White uh, Care Act has built the infrastructure for case management support, the housing, mm -hmm. transportation, and, and a lot of services that may not technically be funded under the ACA. Could you speak to that, American? Um, could, could you clarify? So uh, <laughs> is there some provision that would allow uh, if Ryan White is not in place for uh, support services to be continued in the health centers and yes in the health center setting in the health center setting um, I know from our question. point of view maybe I could give you a minute to, to think about that it. would be helpful yes <laughs> can, I, can I rescue you after yeah. I, I not chopped you down I'll, I'll rescue mm -hmm. you <laughs> I think that uh, our community health center finds it very valuable to have support services, social workers and people, because just like we've learned in HIV, we cannot 
get our patients to the clinic, we can't deliver the care if we don't have this infrastructure in place. And so I think that our board and our administrative staff has made that understanding and leap. Where the reimbursement comes from, comes from external sources besides the grant that we have. So you have, maybe it comes from patient revenue in general. Mm -hmm. So, but I think the point of retaining case management support would be supported both the community health center letter as mm -hmm. well as the Ryan White level. Right. And so, yeah, in thinking about that some more, there are certainly health centers that are already capacitated to do this. I think some of the larger ones and the more progressive ones that have been able to run a nice margin and are philosophically equipped like this, either through leadership or, or external training, have developed some of these resources already. So it's going to be a very case-by-case -case basis, I would think. Um, this year, I, I would say no is probably the short answer to the question, because our intent to provide increased enabling services, which would have included these kind of things, as well as the dental and the behavioral would have been high, high priority targets, uh, is gone. That money is done for fiscal year 11. So not till October 1st will that be revisited. I think philosophically the leadership in the Bureau is very interested in expanding um, these services uh, across the entire health center platform. Uh, but in some ways, I think it goes back to also specific communities of solution need to define what their needs are and how that they determine what their greatest priority is, if they need um, behavioral or social work to deal with some of the issues that are prevalent in, in HIV or if they need specific personnel to deal with that as opposed to more generalized workers. Uh, but I think at the current time, there is burgeoning capacity for this, but there's still quite a ways to go. Um, and, I, and I doubt movement will be taken on for the rest of this year. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that. Let me just, uh, we'll just have one more question at the microphone and then we'll wrap up for the afternoon. Yes, I'm Estelita from Arkansas and I have worked with uh, the Community Health Center for mm -hmm. 15 years now. Great. Um, it has been an important point of collaboration with the community. One, with AHEC, which stands for Area Health Education Center. Mm -hmm. And so for every year we have uh, residents rotating in our community health center and for every year we always get residents to apply in our community health center. Two, we collaborate with um, HBCU, the Historical Black College and University, and so we get our positive HIVs from the university. And three, because of our collaboration with um, Department of Health, for every patient who comes to our community health center, we do test for HIV and syphilis in, on their first visit because we can send to the Department of Health for free. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So I cannot overemphasize what we have said and what Polly had said. Thank and you. And I think that that's great. And, and I would that they could all look like that, assuming they didn't have the internal capacity to do it first off. Uh, the linkages to the health departments and some of these other things are going to be absolutely critical, and hopefully that's where the technology gains will help us out in creating some of those bi-directional pathways. I think you know, even outside of HIV, we see it also that some of our 
immunization numbers and prenatal care, or not prenatal care numbers, but um, female preventative screening services like pap smears, some of those numbers are not as high as we want them. Um, and we tell ourselves that we're suspicious of those numbers because a lot of folks are getting those services across state lines or at the Department of Health level. And that that information, even though those patients are compliant with United States Preventative Service task screening guidelines, that information is not populating the primary care chart. So when you look at the opportunity for health departments to either pay for screening services for infectious diseases like HIV and syphilis, like you mentioned, or to back report um, immunizations or preventative services that are being delivered in other spaces, that bidirectional information gives a very clear picture of what the patient is happening to the patient so you can understand their needs better. I think what it also does is it capacitates the provider to have more ability to send patients out to do things and to receive services because the payment mechanisms are stronger because they're spread out over a broader intersection of the, of the health delivery interface. Uh, and partially that's part of the triple aim of care triangle where the individual person and the total population, in other words, the clinic and the public health department are working together better. So that's a really excellent point. Thank you for that. And thank you, Dr. Burke. We appreciate it. Thank you, Paul.